children were really disregarded. You know, it was a strange kind of paradox in that the part of the religious movement was about encouraging, um, you know, the, the disciples, the adults who had joined the group to shed all their responsibilities, to connect with their innocent self, to to in, in some ways even replicate children. I mean, when, when my father lived in a commune in Medina um, in Suffolk in the UK, um, we would see groups of adults walking around in their pajamas, sucking on teddy bears. You know, they were they were sucking their thumbs and and cuddling teddy bears. And there was this really kind of uncomfortable feeling that um, while the adults were regressing and literally sort of lying in their partner's lap, you know, wanting to be stroked and 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 um, lullabied to sleep, the children were just left wild and totally un cared for. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. I wanted to say hello before this episode began. I met this guest, Lily Dunn, a couple of months ago when we connected over the fact that both of our parents were involved with the guru, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. And I was so grateful to meet Lily. She's a writer as well and working on a memoir about her experience. And it was a unique and thrilling experience to be able to talk with Lily and to share some of what I knew and hear what she knew. And she was able to fill in some gaps for me. And I just couldn't believe my luck in being able to meet Lily and be able to offer this conversation on the launch of my book, which is just such beautiful alignment. So as you listen to this episode, know that I'm careening off into space somewhere and probably my mind is blown somewhere because my book is officially out in the world. And if you are interested in learning more about the book, please visit my website, ronitplank.com. You can order it. You can read about it. You can listen to other interviews I've done about it. And also, if you catch it in time, I will be on a live stream Town Hall Seattle event on May 11th in the evening at 7.30 Pacific time. So there are tickets and information on that on my website. And lastly, thank you so much for being a listener and for being a reader. And I really hope that you enjoy listening to this conversation I had with Lily Dunn as much as I enjoyed having it. Today, my guest is Lily Dunn. Her personal essays have appeared in Granta, Hinterland, Litro, and The Real Story in the UK, and she's a regular writer for the international Eon magazine. Her first novel, Shadowing the Sun, was published by Portobello Books and described by the big issue as a vivid and meaningful portrait of innocence destroyed. She is co-editor of A Wild and Precious Life, Addiction, Physical and Mental Illness, and Its Aftermath, a collection of stories and poetry from writers in recovery, due to be published by Unbound in April 2021. Her memoir about the legacy of her father's various addictions will be published by Wiedenfeld and Nicholson in spring 2022. Welcome, Lily. Thank you so much. We met because of our writing, uh, because we've both written about our parents and their involvement with the guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. And 
that is sort of an unexpected gift to me of writing about this experience. I put this work out there a while ago, and I believe you saw my piece in I The did. Atlantic. Yeah, 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 I did. And then you reached out to me, and I read your piece that was in Eon. And that kind of connection when you can sort of bridge a distance, an emotional distance and a time distance with your writing is is part of the reason why it, it's miraculous to me. Yes, it, it, it's lovely. And um, I mean, the reason that I um, found your piece was because I was, well, I mean, this was the feeling actually that promoted me to write the Eon piece was the, the sense that I, I mentioned in my email to you that there hadn't been enough written that I felt from the child's point of view, you know, the people, the children who had been born into or kind of dragged through the um, the the whole kind of movement, Osho's movement. And I mean, I don't know whether you've come across many other um, people of our generation who are writing about it. I haven't yet. Um, I know that. So my sources are some of the books that you're familiar with, too. And then the main impetus for me to write the piece when I did was the docuseries on Netflix, Wild Wild Country. Yeah. Um, and I think that is something you had seen as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And what struck me, and, and this is what I wrote about and also what you wrote about, is that so if for anyone who hasn't seen, so any listeners who haven't seen the docu-series, I think it's it's recommended. It's very good. There's a lot of footage there that it wasn't available to me other than through this series. But there's so much time in all these parts spent on Bhagwan, the originator of this movement, and his right-hand woman, Ma Anand Sheila. And, and I should mention that Bhagwan is also named Osho. And so... There was so much time spent on the adults and the movement in this docu-series and so much time spent on the building of the community and also the friction between the small town, Antelope, Oregon, with um, the people who were on the commune. But I kept looking for images of children. And I, aside from looking for pictures of my mom, because she was, she was in Oregon and she was also in India, but aside from looking for footage of maybe my mom— I was looking for the children and I was looking for any kind of mention of families. And I was disappointed when after all these interviews, these hours and hours of interviews, the filmmakers didn't really address what had happened to families or how children were treated. And that's what I wrote about. Yeah, yeah. No, I had exactly the same feeling, which and a very strong feeling at that as well. Um, and I think um, what I what I came to realize as I researched it, which basically sort of backed up my feelings about having been raised or well, not directly raised in the commune. I was similar to you in that I think, if I understand right, your mum went off and you stayed behind. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I, yes. I stayed with my mum. My mum and dad separated. My dad joined the religious group when um, I was six and then he was off, you know, and I didn't see him for many, many months. And then he came back a, a changed man. But, um, you know, so the um, what I sort of started to think about and do a bit of research very much backed up my feelings, which were that children were really disregarded. You know, it was a strange kind of paradox in that the part of the religious movement was about encouraging, um, you know, that the disciples, the adults who had joined the group to shed all their responsibilities, to connect with their innocent self, to 
to, in, in some ways, even replicate children. I mean, when, when my father lived in a commune in Medina, um, in Suffolk in the UK, um, we would see groups of adults walking around in their pajamas, sucking on teddy bears. You know, they were, they were sucking their thumbs and, and cuddling teddy bears. And there was this really kind of uncomfortable feeling that, um, while the adults were regressing, and literally sort of lying in their partner's lap, you know, wanting to be stroked and, 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 um, lullabied to sleep. The children were just left wild and totally uncared for, um, left to, uh, to their own devices and to really, you know, look after each other and grow up very quickly. Um, and I don't know whether you had that experience. Did you, did you visit the communes at all? So this is the part that's so fascinating to me as someone who didn't because so, and I, I write about this a little bit in my memoir, but for me, there were different phases of my understanding of my mom going and doing this because when I first lived in Seattle with my mom, after my father had left, she was introduced to Rajneesh by a friend of hers and started bringing my sister and I, and my sister was about three and I was about five and a half to these meditations at the Rajneeshi Center in Capitol Hill in Washington and um, Washington State. And I didn't understand why we were going. I didn't want to go. Of course, I'm a child. But also, I didn't understand, you know, why we were listening to someone's voice on a tape. And also that the adults didn't seem to be very interested in our arrival. I had come from um, a kibbutz in Israel, which is sort of a socialist community. And children were really prized and taken care of and raised in this nurturing way collectively. And now I, I walked into these rooms where the eyes were just glazed over and disinterested. And as a child, you're a little bit self-centered, of course, but I also had a lot of instincts about people, I think, for a young person. And I remember wondering why there was such a closed-off feeling to our arrival and there wasn't any interest in children being there. And it wasn't until many, many, many years later, like recently, that I understood exactly what the ethos of Bhagwan was and that what my mom told me at a lunch when we were adults, when I was an adult, which was that he felt that they were obstacles to enlightenment, that children were encumbrances. And I, you know, I, that was just so mind-boggling to me. Um, and I also know that I mean, I I could speak to you about so many aspects of this, and it's hard to stay focused. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I feel I feel like the 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 dam has broken. Um, I know that other people like Tim Guest wrote a book, My Life in Orange, and I read some of that, and he was on a commune as well. You had sort of a weekend. W were you there on weekends? Yeah. So Tim was my peer. He was my he was there at Medina in the same place that my father lived in. Um, this was in the early 80s, um, pretty much as Rajneeshpuram, the city in Oregon was being built. Um, it's where my father was living in Medina. Um, and Tim was there among other kids. Um, and they had all, well, many of them had been taken there by, you know, their parents um, from North London schools. So very normal lives, like like the life that I lived. I, we, I was raised in Islington in North London. And um, so, yeah, I would visit on the weekends. So dad would sort of come and pick us up and take us there. And um, and we'd emerge out of the car and these these sort of wild kids all in, in dressed in the colours of the sunset, you know, in their reds and pinks. And I, I just felt completely intimidated. I mean, I was like, um, I don't know, I was probably age eight or so. And um, 
you know, coming from a, I was at a little convent school at the time. And, you know, I'd be, so, by, I think by the second or third visit, I, I was trying to change into a, my red replica clothes on, on the journey over there. So very much kind of felt like we were on the outside, um, but, but, you know, very, I mean, it, you know, it was, it was incredibly compelling um, and mm-hmm. wild. Wait, what was compelling about it for you? And do you have a sibling? Yeah, I have a brother, an older brother, um, mm-hmm. two years older. Um, so, well, I mean, it was this beautiful, big, stately home with lots of grounds and woods and um, the communal life, you know, that you'd have people cooking together and eating together. They had um, big discos where all the all the um, the the adults would be dancing wildly with their malas drum around their their shoulders and hair wild and you know it was all very kind of like huge abandon um and you know the kids were were fun and very forward um they were like they were unlike any kids that i had known back at home um in that they 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 seemed to be much more sort of well, it's sexually advanced for a start. There was a lot of a lot of talk, very young, about sort of sexual conquest and stuff, which I found quite intimidating. But of course, when you're young, it's also quite beguiling. You know, it's 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 um, so yeah. I mean, a lot of that time when I talked to my brother about it, um, I think a lot of it we were just hanging about, waiting for our dad. Um, we didn't see him a great deal, and often when we were there with him, he was off somewhere else so um he was in a relationship but he was in an open relationship so with other people um but there wasn't really a sense that that was really working for him um and we we would have to you know we'd stay in different different rooms every time we visited so there was no sense of there were a lot of communal rooms as well there was no sense of kind of there being any kind of stability there but you know, I mean, the other thing that I remember Tim writing about in his book was this sense that he spent most of his life at that time on tiptoes looking for his mother in a crowd. And, you know, this this sort of concept of the multi-parent family, I think, um, you know, a lot of it kind of looks good on paper, but it's it's very much there as a, a to support the parent who who is choosing that lifestyle to um, reinforce perhaps things that they're doing in their lives, you know, they're, they're, it's allowing them to behave in a certain way. So it, 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 the idea of a multi-parent family for a child, you know, I mean, whoever came up with that idea that the child is going to be happier <laughs> with, you know, like 50 <laughs> partial parents who just, right. you know what I mean? It's well, like, right. <laughs> well, it's also true because, I mean, I mean, especially when you think about it, this is not even uh, this is not even centered around the child's well-being. This is centered on the parents' well-being. So how can it doesn't matter how many parents might be co-parenting a child in this condition in this area because none of them are focused or have any kind of idea that children are important. I mean, I've read many reports, and I don't know if you have too, about vasectomies and sterilizations yeah. being condoned or encouraged because, but again, the children were hindrances to enlightenment and to, I guess really dedicating their lives to this this Bhagwan type of living. 
Which I don't know what Bhagwan was thinking because ultimately if he had had his way and continued and everyone had been sterilized or had vasectomies, I don't know where he thought he was going to get more followers. I know. Like really. Isn't that it's <laughs> crazy? It is. So strange. Yeah. So strange. But so when you got there, okay, so for me, uh, I don't know how much is nature and I don't know how much is nurture. I have a lot of strong opinions about this kind of uh, society and this kind of raising of children, but that's because I missed out on things and I— I, I'm a very guarded person that way. I am a very, very responsible person with my children, and I I don't have a lot of uh, interest in this sort of abandon, whereas maybe had I been raised in a super restricted way, I would be drawn to sort of an abandoned type of childhood. Mm. But when you got to, is it Medina? Or Medina, 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 yeah. When you got to Medina— do you remember what your first instinct was before you found it compelling? Was like for me, I remember when I saw people massaging each other on a lawn when I was just five, five and a half. I remember thinking, why are they touching each other like that? Why is this happening out in the open? It wasn't something that I was drawn to right away. I, but yet at the same time, before long, someone was massaging my feet and then I was massaging her back, right? Because it doesn't take long for a kid to sort of uh, comply or follow suit. And so, but my, my, my default was, whoa, this doesn't feel quite right. And I'm wondering about you when you were there with all the sexuality around you. Um, yeah. Um, so I think I definitely felt uncomfortable with the attention that the kids, you know, it sort of felt inappropriate, the attention that, I mean, they weren't doing anything inappropriate to me, but the fact that the things they were talking about, um, in front of me and sort of, you know, making a comment on me going through puberty or, you know, it just, it just felt uncomfortable. I remember that. Um, that was very early on. Um, I also, um, have a clear memory of, um, an older guy, um, looking at me in a certain way when I was sort of eight or nine. Um, and me sort of feeling he was, you know, he was a friend of my dad's and, me kind of feeling like this is sort of nice, you know, it's nice that I'm getting this attention from this man, but also this is wrong. And I think my dad was aware of it, but kind of laughed it off. And and I, I remember that very clearly. Um, I remember, um, I mean, you know, I, I have memories of of the communal bedroom where my dad slept for a bit, where people were only having sex. Um, and, you know, me and my brother just thinking this was hilarious, but again, kind of, <laughs> but, you know, I just, that's like such a gift that you guys thought it was hilarious. Like instead, you know, I mean, I'm sure it left a lasting impression, but the, I'm so glad that you guys found it funny because otherwise it's horrifying. Well, well Ben, my, my brother was always absolutely brilliant at kind of bringing humor to any situation as we were growing up. Um, my dad lived in a, uh, a commune, a house, um, because he, he ran a publishing company, uh, and it was quite important to the religious group. So they, they published books that were relevant to the group. Um, and he set up a company in a communal house in Tuscany, in Italy. So I spent m much of my adolescence, um, having long summer holidays with him there which was a mix of absolute, I mean, it was just beautiful. You know, you know. I don't know if you've ever been mm -hmm. to Tuscany, but it, it was the most yes. exceptional place and it was highly creative. Um, 
for me. It's where I started to write in, in earnest. And, um, and, you know, we were again, totally left to our own devices. We could take our friends. We, we spent a lot of time making these video, video films of each other. And we had a wild time. We had little motorbikes, you know, it was great. But the other side was that we were very much sort of part of the, of, of what was happening in that adult world, you know, swapping partners, um, you know, sort of people openly having sex at all times of the day. You know, you could hear it when you're sitting outside in the, in the front garden. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, I look back now and I think, I mean, you know, me and my brother were very lucky because we had such a stable home at home with our mother, which didn't change. Um, and so we had enough of a kind of moral grounding or, a, I mean, you know, I don't like that word moral, but, you, you know, that a sense of yeah. what's right and wrong, I guess. Yeah, like an inner compass a little bit about what belongs. Exactly. So I think we had enough detachment from it. And, you know, a lot of that, as I say, came out in my brother's humor. So, you know, we could joke about the more kind of crazy, wacky stuff. But having said that, I think having such extreme experiences between home and and a very sort of um, charismatic father and um, very unavailable father was also, and, and the sort of wildness of his lifestyle, was also very confusing to a to a teenager. And I think I found it harder than my brother did. I think my brother sort of learned quite early on to take what he could and and really just sort of enjoy the freedom, you know. Um, and he didn't really go in search of my dad's sort of attention or time. Whereas I I for a lot of my teenage years, young teenage years, I felt very um sort of lost, I think, when I was with him because I was very in need of his attention. He married a 19 year old um when he was in his late 30s so he really married someone who became like a sister to me um and i found that very difficult because i sort of got thrown into quite a competitive kind of relationship for her, for his attention really which i shouldn't have been at that age well it's there's so much about what you're saying, there are so many uh, facets to it because you've got the absentee parent. You've got, I know that he had issues with addiction. I know that he, like for me, my mom was the gift parent, the special the special treat parent. Like I, I didn't get to see her as much as I wanted to. And my father was the stable one. And I do want to talk about your mom and those, the, the contrast on your weekends and things like that. But uh, before we move into that, I feel like it's interesting how siblings deal with these things. I was the older one, you were the younger one. And do you feel that this, aside from the addiction and the absenteeism of your father, do you feel like your brother and you were affected in the long term by this early exposure to all the sexuality and these these very fuzzy boundaries? Or did you kind of just get rid of that as you got older? No, I mean, well, I, I can't speak for my brother. I think my brother was not affected like I was. Um, I think, I mean, he's he has lived a very straight life in that he, he married his, his um, school sweetheart and is still with her and um, has, yeah, he's, he's been pretty, pretty kind of okay. Um, I've certainly not 
it's not quite been as straightforward as that for me. Um, but then I was exposed to a lot more than he was because I was a girl. Um, and, you know, it's terrible to say, but I mean, I, I, a big major thing that happened in my upbringing was that one of my dad's friends in Italy groomed me. Um, and that went over, that was when I was like 13. And that was really tricky. And I think that set me up kind of, I think that and my dad marrying a 19 year old sort of set me up on a road of choosing very kind of real kind of power imbalances in the relationships that I went into as a young woman. Um, and that took a long time to kind of get out of my system. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's, yes, it's those early experiences, but then it's how you, how you reiterate the patterns of those through the choices that you make in your life, isn't it? Until you get to a point where actually you can stand back and think, oh, yeah, actually that was probably not very sensible and that wasn't very helpful for me. And that's, a, that's something that I kind of continued to do, which was not particularly good for my emotional sort of development. Um, so I would say it took me a while to be able to sort of, you know, look, look that in the, in the face um, and really see it for what it was. Right, because what you're talking about, too, is the power imbalance, but also there's this gender difference. It's not that your brother was free from harm's way, but he, you know, the way it works out and shakes out in a family has so much to do with birth order and gender, I think, and temperament and what each of us needs from our parent. You know, my my sister's experience of my mom's leaving and being raised by our father is really different in a sense because I was sort of my father's— um, I, I don't want to, I was in a way like his partner, you know, when I lived with my, our, my sister and my father, when my mom was gone, I was really precocious and I took on a lot of responsibility and I wanted to. And then there was a point I just didn't want to anymore because I lost that part of my childhood where I could be a kid. Um, and I had wanted that in a way to be older and to be responsible and to be looked at as like this uh, equal but then there came a point during adolescence where I realized, oh, I've bit off way more than I can chew here. And in a sense, my sister went through the same loss of my mom and all that. But I sort of became a maternal figure that protected her from some of that. Whereas, you know, so the sacrifice is different, right, for each kid. Did your, did your father know, were you actually, beyond being groomed, are you saying that you were abused by his friend? Um. I was talking about this the other day. Um, I was, yeah, I'd say I was because of the power um, imbalance. Yes, I was. Um, and um, But it was all dressed up in this idea that, um, you, you know, young girls' first sexual experience should be initiated by an older man, which is one of the beliefs that that religious movement had. Um, so this was happening, this was quite a normal thing in, during that time in the, in the sort of, you know, 1980s. Um, so my dad knew about it and he condoned it. He, he thought it was all okay. So when I turned to him for help, I didn't get it. And I think actually that that was the biggest betrayal for me, um, was that really he completely, um, you know, whether he was brainwashed or not, in that moment, he betrayed me to the point that he did not do what a father should do. And actually, 
he he completely kind of bypassed what you would expect a father's natural instinct would be to, would be you know is to protect their child against somebody who is trying to do something you know sexual with with them um mm-hmm. and they don't want it do you do you remember your father so my parents divorced when i was 5 um and do, when did your parents separate um, yeah, I was six, so very, very mm, around right. the same time, yeah. Yeah, um, and was your father in your memory before he started following Bhagwan, was he ever a responsible figure or a paternal type of person in your no. life, like oh, uncomplicated? No. <laughs> no, no, he wasn't. Um, he was wonderful. He was very attractive and um, very successful publisher, writer, very... Um, you know, he had a, he had a, a a very sort of starry quality, um, and my mum and he were very much in love. Um, but he was, I think, he was detached somehow emotionally. I think he he kind of, I don't know whether he was too young or, you know, there was just something about the normalcy or the intimacy of of being in a in a nuclear family um, with a mortgage and and you know responsibilities that he ran a mile or many miles away from, but um, yeah he he was he was not a he was he, in in absolutely no way was he a a regular father he was and I think my mum and dad however much they loved each other and and had a connection they they struggled over sort of parental responsibility issues you know he he had fast cars and he he um he wasn't an addict at that point his addictions kicked in much much later um but he was he had his eye on on other women um mm-hmm. so yeah yeah dear mom it's interesting to me when i read in your in your essay um in eon about the idea that your mom was letting you go to this house, it's its an interesting thing to learn that your mom sounds responsible and she sounds, from what you wrote about her, um, like your, your, your um, stabilizing force. Yeah. Is that accurate? Definitely, yeah. So I understand from what you wrote that she let you go in a sense because she didn't want to take away your relationship with your parent, your other parent, and also cause you to maybe rebel and not want to be with her. Is that true? Um, yes, I think she had a very difficult decision. Um, she, well, the, going back to your question initially about what were my feelings um, on visiting Medina, um, the first time that my mother visited there, um, she cried because she didn't want her children to be spending the weekend there. But she had a very difficult decision that, you know, would she put a stop, would, would, she, would she allow us to, to go and spend time with our, our father and grow up with him in our lives and, and trust that at some point we would be able to make our own decisions about what was right and wrong and, you know, perhaps face him and, and confront him about the, the areas of his neglect? Or would she stop that relationship and risk that he would become this this sort of um, bigger-than-life figure, you know, which which is the issue, isn't it? Is if, if you, I mean, if you step in and, and prevent a, a, a child from seeing their parent, it's, you know, it's incredibly complicated. I think it's it's a very difficult thing to 
to be sort of confronted with. Um, so I think she did the right thing. Um, you know. So you agree with, you're, are you glad she let you go? I think she couldn't have really done anything else. Um, I understand why she did. And I think it, you know, I think, I think it, I think it definitely exposed us to things that weren't healthy for us. But at the same time, I think we needed to have a relationship with our father. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's made me a writer and, um, (laughs) it's made me understand and empathize with people. And, um, you know, it's, I don't know. I couldn't really imagine it any other way, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was in your life, right? I mean, because it would be an interesting, it would be very different if he was more of a mythic figure that you never saw and that you didn't know about. I mean, you got to see all of the mistakes he made too, which have left their own, their own legacy. But at the same time, it sounds like you're clear eyed about who he was more now than, than ever. Yeah, I mean, things got very messy in the end um, when he became an alcoholic. And, um, you know, that was all pretty nasty. But, I mean, you know, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, you must feel this as well, Roni, having written a book about your mother, that there's this sort of strange thing that happens when you commit to writing the story of a parent's life is that you start to understand their life as as almost like a narrative. I mean, it is now you create a narrative out of their lives. But somehow it sort of makes things all, it's that cause and effect, isn't it? It's like you can look back and say, okay, this happened 30, 40 years ago. And then as a result of that, that happened. And then you come right up to the present day. And it's like, well, of course, this is the way it is now because of all of that happening. You know, mm-hmm. yes. I don't know whether I'm just sort of talking. Does that make sense? No, it, absolutely. You know, I, it, sort of, it really helps, yeah. I think, to understand where it, the, the writing of his life from my point of view, has been a hugely healing thing because it's enabled me to really understand why he made certain decisions that he made quite early on, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which and also step outside of that narrative that we tell ourselves as as within a family in order just to survive. Because I think we, as a, as families when we've had difficult people in our families, I think it's it's very easy to sort of stick with a certain narrative, oh, that he's a narcissist or yes. oh, that he, yes. you know, he's just self-centered. Or, But actually when you start to go beneath that and really try to get to grips with what it is about this man, you know, what, it, what is it that, that really kind of inspired him to make the choices that he did? Um, I think it can help enormously. And I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I hadn't known him as well as I did. Yes, yes, because that's what I mean. He would have just been more of this sort of um, cutout, this sort of idea father. Do you—I'm curious for you, and I'm happy to speak about this on my end, but about the relationship of forgiveness or anger you have now. Like, what's the ratio? <laughs> like, what is the the formula right now when you think about your father in terms of the anger or forgiveness or empathy that you have right now for him and and what he experienced that's a it's a nice thing to reflect on um i don't feel well um i feel a lot of empathy for him um i wouldn't say i've forgiven him um i don't think i need to forgive him um 
But I understand, I feel empathy because I understand, but that doesn't mean that I think that what he did was right. Um, I think, I, I don't think I feel anger because I've managed to turn my, my life around, um, completely on my own terms. And I've managed to find a lot of healing in, through this, you know, it, it, it wasn't always that way. Um, so, and I think, again, I think the writing has enabled me to really face it. Um, so it hasn't been something that I've had to feel uncomfortable about and push away, which often, you know, we do have that instinct, don't we? When we, we have that choice that we can decide just not to go there. Um, but as writers, we can't do that because then we, what we write is not real. You know, it doesn't come from the heart. It doesn't come from a real place. So it really puts you in that position where, where you, you absolutely have to embrace it fully. Um, so I would say that I have definitely kind of come to a place where I can stand outside of that experience and understand it a lot more for what it was. Mm -hmm. And I do, I know what you're saying about the idea of a life and looking at how someone's arc has happened in their life, because that's part of the reason why I was interested in the the concept of this podcast, because I know life is messy and it's really hard to find patterns, but I know that as human beings, we generally like patterns. Mm. And I think that's why we enjoy, part of the reason we enjoy movies and books so much, because there's sort of like a structure and there's something satisfying about the way things end, um, even if it's a hard story. And I know our lives are very complex and hard to order that way. But at the same time, when I can look at something and a series of events and see how everything led to what it did and find some sort of um, order in the chaos, mm. it does reassure me or it fulfills sort of that writerly need in me. And I did, I did just like what you're saying, I did go back and, and think a lot about how my mom was raised and how the marriage between her and my father shaped what would happen later. Mm. There is a cause and effect in many ways. And I, I, I have a relationship with my mother now, which is part of the book. And my understanding of what happened and what I lost growing up has also changed as the years have gone by. And the book, and I talk about this a lot, but the book that I wrote for, for publication that's coming out now is different than what it was a couple of years ago. My, my perspective and my, even my compassion and my, my view of things changed a little bit over time. And so that's that's sort of, it's a really big responsibility as a writer if you choose to take it on. Absolutely. I mean, I'd be interested to know how long it took you to write. Is it something that you had to redraft a number of times for that reason, that you, mm. your, your feelings changed in the process of writing it? Well, I think that when I first drafted it, I didn't know I, I kind of was just trying to get everything down. Like a lot of writers, we do that, just try to dump it all out. And I think that I thought that I was being generous and I thought that I was being, um, I wasn't trying to blame or finger point and that I thought I was putting a lot of reflection on on my actions too. But so I would say overall, I'm not answering your question, I realize. <laughs> um, I'm not a very good guest. Um, I think that, you know, from start to finish, I would say, between the little essays I wrote that then became a bigger piece 
I would say about three to four years yeah. because I drafted the first one. It was a thesis in my master's program in 2017. And then I changed it and restructured it and changed it and rewrote it and edited it. So it's been through a lot of different versions, but that doesn't mean I was working only on it for three years or, you know, four mm. years. I took breaks. You know, I worked on short stories and other essays, and then I came back and I, I would change the language. But I'm not someone who overhauls an entire piece of writing. I, I have writer friends who might just scrap everything and start again. I'm pretty stubborn about what I've created, and so I'll just keep switching it and, and mushing it and, like, turning it into what I want from what I have. I, I rarely start from scratch, so I'll mm. just kind of change as I go and tweak as I go because— I, maybe I'm lazy. I don't want to write from the very beginning again. Um, I just, I, I assume the core of what I have is what I mean. And then I just change yeah. it to really reflect where I am now. Yeah. And yeah. just, just a question, because I'm curious, I, I think sure. you mentioned that your, your mother is still alive and you've got a good relationship yes. with her. Is that right? So how did she feel about, how did she feel about you writing about her? Well, I don't think it was a really, I don't think it was easy, the first couple of essays I wrote. I, one of the first essays, because I started off writing fiction, and one of the first essays, my fiction reflected a lot about my own experience, and I realized, oh, I think I'm still working this out. So one of the very first essays I published was in Lilith magazine about a time before she left, um, and it was called Blackberries, and, and I don't think she was pleased with it. Um, this was years ago, years and years, maybe eight or nine years ago. I wrote another essay uh, for Brainchild called What You're Left With When She's Gone. I wrote another essay in Proximity Magazine called I'm Sorry About the Dog. So I was inching closer and closer to talking about what had happened. And I don't think my parents or my sister completely appreciated being a character in my work. Mm. Um you know, I think that's hard. I haven't yet seen myself as a character in someone's work. I, I may have made it into someone's story and not know it. And I'm sure it's a strange experience. Um, but I that's why I think it's really important as a writer to be respectful and to make sure that what you're doing is not trying to throw someone under the bus. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, that you're— you know, at least as a nonfiction writer, right? I mean, <laughs> when you're writing fiction, if you want to dress up the person in all kinds of little costumes so that no one really knows who you're talking about. But if you're writing nonfiction, there's a real responsibility. Yeah. And and there's, you know, I have children and I have a family and family is the of the utmost importance to me. And so I have to be, I have to have integrity or at least try to have integrity. And so I think that before I went to the final draft of this book that's coming out, I sent it to my mother, my sister, and my father, mm. and uh, I, I wanted to do that because I felt strongly that they should be able to see it before it it, it hits, you know, the public, and and also to help me, you know, where did I make mistakes? What's wrong here? Mm. What do you think of this? I mean, it, to me, that was really important, and so, you know, what's interesting for me is that my my sister corrected several things that I had wrong and added things that I forgot, some really important things. So I thanked her for that. My father gave me a lot of notes, and I, I joke about this, but he gave me nine pages <laughs> of single-spaced notes. That's fantastic. <laughs> and some of it, and, and that was really funny. And, I mean, it was funny, and also I had to deal with the unexpected reaction he had because there were parts about it that I don't think he understood what living with him was like for me. Mm -hmm. 
I love my father. We have a great relationship. And we've also been through a lot together, a lot. And and I don't I don't know that he was ready to see that he wasn't always the hero mm. in the story. And that was hard for him. Mm. Uh, and my mother was actually thankful. She said, she, we sat together outside. Uh, COVID was raging and we were in her backyard and I brought over some treats because we always eat when we're together. That's me. I just, we love to snack. And we had coffee and snacks. And she said that she was worried, but that she was grateful for this version. Mm. And um, that felt right. Gosh, that must've been quite emotional as well. This must've been a moment. Yes. Uh, you know, I feel really lucky that they're in my life. And um, I don't know how exactly we made it here. That's part of the memoir. But I, I think about it a lot. And people ask me a lot about forgiveness. And they ask me about how did we reconcile? And they ask me, how did you get here? And I'm still working on that answer. I think it's complicated. People are complex. And, you know, I don't know. I think there's a part of me that feels like I don't think she would have made the same choices she wouldn't have made the same choices if she had another chance. And that's part of being okay now. Mm. You know, that's part of understanding that things can be okay. I think also the fact that she is still around and she's so close, you're so close to her and you can have those kinds of conversations is just so valuable that you have, you have had the freedom to be able to write and express yourself very clearly and that she has been able to accept that. I think is is amazing actually um because that's um that's something I never had the opportunity to do with my father um and I think in a way even if he had been alive he probably wouldn't have recognized himself anyway because he had such a kind of inflated view of himself um mm-hmm. and part of the issue with That's hard him, to work with. It's really hard to work with and I think actually looking back I think it's a, I think it is a bit of a mental illness um because part of our frustrations with him was his complete sort of lack of grasp of reality, really, Um, just in terms of understanding, you know, what it was like for anyone sort of being pulled through a relationship with him, you know, his effects on other people. Um, So in a way, you know, that's sort of classic. I mean, it is a classic narcissistic personality um, that just sort of lacks that ability to really see themselves for who they are. So, you know, there's a part of me that sort of thinks, well, gosh, if I if he had been alive, you know, I mean, would I have written the book? Possibly not. Um, would I have had the opportunity to share it with him if I had? Um, oh, gosh, it's it just it feels like such a huge leap for me to even imagine that. Um, so you know, and, and it's weird though, isn't it? When because there is an argument um, that you shouldn't write about people who have died because you're not giving them a chance to defend themselves. Um, and I felt, I did feel that quite strongly with this book that I had to, I had to um, take it on to my shoulders to try to understand him in as best a way as I could so that I didn't make him come across as an ogre. <laughs> mm, yes. Well, right. But that's that empathy. It's this empathy and this, the kind of what we're charged with, I think, at least the way I want to write. And it's interesting you said that too, because sometimes I feel that people won't write a memoir. I know someone who's finishing up a memoir now, and she was only comfortable writing it now that her parents are gone. Mm. 
because she had such an abusive experience that she just, she needed to wait until they were gone. So I think it depends on, you know, the individual writer. The other thing I wanted to add, too, is that I think I was able to push back on my mom and what had happened to us in in the last five or seven years because I think I innately knew she wasn't going anywhere. When I was growing up, it was not safe to challenge. You know, as a child, you don't really exactly have a full grasp of what's going on. But I never had that rebellious phase as a teenager where I get angry at my mom and push back or criticize her Mm. because she wasn't available to me. But I went through that (laughs) when I got older Mm. because she was hanging around and not leaving. Mm. She lived near me. And I think I started to act up, you know, because I finally had that second adolescence. Yeah. And and then in the past couple of years, I've gotten over that. And now we're settled. Do you know what I mean? That's lovely. That's that's really mm -hmm. great that you had that opportunity, I think, that you weren't stuck in that sort Mm -hmm. of child place of not being heard. Yes. Yes, yes. And I have to ask in the in before we talk about in the few minutes remaining I want to talk about the work you're doing now, but how's your mom? Um thank you for asking. I think um I mean my mom is fantastic. She's 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 an amazing woman. She's um very much present in my life and um she's absolutely wonderful. Um and you know, we're very close. We always have been. But it's lovely that you asked that because uh, one one frustration she's always had, and she's had this since I was a kid when I sort of started writing um, just, you know, when I was sort of very, very young, kind of started kind of exploring mm-hmm. things through stories, was that I always either ignored her as a character. You know, the mothers <laughs> in my stories were either ignored or they were or they were ogres, so I would kind of disguise my dad <laughs> as my mom, and um, or, or you know I would put all my energy into exploring this sort of you know the narcissistic character of my father, which sort of happened later, and and my mom just didn't even feature. So I think I think you know there is that risk, isn't there, with the the the, the consistent, constant, reliable, loving parent yes. that they just slightly get left by the wayside. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, but in a way, you could say if you're not being written about, you're doing something. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's what I tell her. Um, but no, she's she's amazing, and um, she's been a huge support to me throughout my life, and also is very supportive of my writing and and you know mm. so and this book. Um, she's a writer mm-hmm. herself, so she she understands you know that whole kind of process. Wow. Yeah. So you're swimming, you're swimming around writers. Is your brother a writer? He's as well? actually now an, a literary agent, which is hilarious. Oh, he, wow. he was a publisher for many years. And um so yes. yeah, we all went into that field. You sure did. Yeah. Um so so can you talk about this project you're working on now, which uh will have I think just launched or published when this episode airs? Yeah, well um, um yeah. really interesting. I will I it, it's it's interesting because again it kind of evolves out of my relationship with my father. But um, my dad, um, when I was getting married, um, which was in two thousand and five, uh, my father suddenly became well. It became very evident to us that my father had an alcohol problem, an al- alcoholism problem. Um, I think it had been happening for a few years. He lived in California. He lived in Bolinas, um, which is just north of San Francisco. Um, so we didn't see him that often, but he came over for my wedding and he was not well. Um, 
And then when I was on my honeymoon, we got called back early because he had um, had a fall and was in intensive care. And the sort of, you know, the, the bigness of the problem sort of hit us. And me and my brother went out to Bellinas to try and get him into rehab. So we had this hellish week with him where he really was kind of, you know, it wasn't our father. I mean, he'd been taken over by this horrible sort of, you know, out of control addict. Um, and um, so anyways, so just, then started this sort of protracted, long kind of, I mean, I sort of look back and I think it was, it was almost like a, a sort of a suicide in a way, because he just, over the next couple of years, he just did everything in his power to destroy himself. Um, and which was hugely traumatic. Um, and I was giving birth to my first child, um, who was born just before my father died. He was, he was deported back to the UK um with nothing um and he had been very successful had owned his own property had run a publishing company was writing books and he threw it all away he, he lost everything um and he died on the floor of the bnb uh, alone <laughs> so really a really really sad sad end to what had been an extraordinary life i mean you know he had he'd, he'd done many extraordinary things and had had many extraordinary people around him and had had lots of wonderful, you know, wonderful life um, in lots of ways. Um, so anyway, I was inevitably kind of pretty shocked by this and grieving um, and um, had another child. And then my marriage, unfortunately, started to um, fall apart and um so interestingly when my children were the same age as me and my brother were when my dad left me and my my husband decided to separate and i part of during that period i i think i was still very much grieving over my father i decided i wanted to teach creative writing to um recovering addicts i i wanted to try and give something back to that community. I think I think a lot of it was to do with me just trying to understand quite how this thing had happened to my dad so suddenly. Um, and I'd felt I'd, I'd had so little control in it. Um, so I, I got a job doing voluntary work, working in, I was living in London in Hackney and I got a job at a recovery service and went in with very sort of low expectations because, you know, my supervisor there had said, you know, it's very hard retention, you know, these, a lot of the people who were at this recovery service were in, um, you know, therapeutic programs. Um, they were looking for ways that they could express themselves, but they wouldn't necessarily come every week. You know, I had to kind of try and build a community where it was quite a challenging kind of environment. Um, but amazingly, we did build a community very quickly and we had a very kind of strong core group of people who thrived in the group and i really really enjoyed teaching it as well um and after about six weeks of doing this for free i was um i, I had to leave because you know I, I couldn't carry on sort of financially but they wanted me to stay so i applied to the arts council um which is a big organization here in the uk which supports artists um to see whether i could get some money to carry on teaching them and I did. I was successful with the grant, which was amazing. So I pulled in my teaching partner, who's also a, a writer, to help me do it, Zoe Gilbert. And 
So together we taught and for another sort of nine months. But also part of the grant that we got um, was to create an anthology. So to do a, a nationwide call out, to get stories from people who had been affected by addiction, either directly or within their family. Um, but also, you know, a few stories about people who had mental health issues. And um, so we did that and we had a brilliant response and some really great writing came back to us and we selected the writing and, and we created a book, which was really exciting. Um, and then um, we found a publisher, but it was with this publisher called Unbound, which I don't know if the American, um, whether they have, I think they might have a, an outlet in America, but it's, it's an unusual publisher in that they, um, do everything kind of topsy turvy. It's round, round, it's upside down in that you have to, um, prove that your book has a market before. You, mm, yes. I've heard yeah. of this before. Yes. So you raise funds to, um, publish the book. So we had to raise quite significant funds. Um, but we kind of kicked up a storm on Twitter and because it was such a worthwhile project, we managed to raise it and we had some more help from the Arts Council. So yeah, and now that's all happening. So that's really exciting. So the book is coming out in April. And mm -hmm. um, that's amazing. Yeah, we've got 50 contributors and they, I mean, you know, the, the wonderful thing about the whole Unbound the crowdfunding thing is that you do sort of create this real momentum around it. And um, we've got this lovely community of writers who I'm hoping will will get involved in some of the publicity as well. Um, and it, mm -hmm. it just, yeah, it just feels like this lovely thing. I'm just so looking forward to actually having it in my hands, you know, after all these years, because it's, mm -hmm. it's been... After all those years, and also to be able to show those new writers, I would imagine some of them are yeah. newer writers, that their their work is in the world. Absolutely. That, that was my main uh, motivation with it, was that I wanted to... I didn't want to do some digital online thing. I wanted to have a book in our hands, a, a proper hardback book. Mm -hmm. And it's got a fantastic mm -hmm. cover, and it's going to look great. I'm really, really excited about it. That is really exciting. And I, I, it's very good for me as a, you know, to hear how it came to be, but also why, when you shared the story of your father, why it was so important, mm. you know, for you to pool your energy and, and do this. Absolutely. And um, yeah, your memoir too will be out in two years, right? Or a year and a half or something Yeah, like I that. think that the it's, it's, it's not actually been announced yet on social media, although by the time this comes out, it will have been. But um, yeah, so that will be, I think, the spring in 2022. So yeah, it's, it's really fun, actually, Very exciting. that i kind of two books backing up for yes. a year. Yeah. <gasps> yes, it's very exciting. Lily, I'm so glad we've connected and that you have been able to spend this time with me and help me explore our really strange childhoods. <laughs> and yeah. I, I have a feeling we're going to be talking again. So thank you so much for being my guest. Well, thank you so much. And I would love to come again and, and, and extend this talk for sure. Be, it does feel like we've only just scraped the surface. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. 
If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.